Well, please keep your Bibles open there to James chapter 2. As we continue this morning in our series in James, the series on the mature disciple. Allow me just to uh, just come before God in prayer for the moment. Lord, now as we open up your word again, we ask your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Father God, that... Uh, that our hearts would be open to receive that word that you would say to us this morning. But Father, if there are things that you need to challenge us about in our own individual lives, that, Lord, would, we would uh, be responsive to your Holy Spirit, prepared, Lord, to humble ourselves before you, and, Lord, to, uh, to repent uh, if, if uh, necessary, Lord. We also pray this morning that as we open up your word, that, uh, Lord, we might also find encouragement through it, recognising, Lord, you know, the way in which you have acted towards us, in grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We just commit this time to you now for his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to, uh, all of us to, uh, to think clearly, first of all, about the gospel. What is the essence of the gospel? If you were asked to, uh, to sort of, you know, in a, in a kind of a nutshell, explain the gospel to someone, how would you do it? Let me just give you a few, uh, a few insights this morning. Simply put, I believe the gospel is this, that when we were in rebellion towards God, when we ourselves were disobedient to his word, denying his authority and his worth, when what we truly deserved was his judgment, instead he and his love reached out to us in mercy and grace and chose to enter into our world in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, 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 he chose to enter into our world to become like us in our humanity that he might identify so distinctly and so clearly with us and then to take upon himself all of our wrongdoing against God, all of our sin, all of our wickedness, all of our sinful attitudes and behaviours, to take upon himself that sin and to bear in our place the judgment that we so rightly deserve from God, the, the, the judgment that our sin deserved. Jesus was prepared to taste death for us in our place in order that he might instead give us forgiveness of our sins to offer, uh, to offer us in place of our sin his righteousness, to give us a right standing before God where we are able to stand God completely free from our sin and, and, and be able to stand there and God can say there is no condemnation anymore for you. There is no judgment anymore that you deserve because Jesus has taken it in your place. And not only that, to, to be given a right relationship with God that will not only last now but right through into eternity forever and ever. What made God do this for us? What made God do this for you? You as a person today living in this culture, in this context, in this society, at this point in history, what made God do that for you? Was it because you were a good person? That you are a good person? That you might be kind and caring? Or that you might, you know, sort of give money to, uh, to missions or things like that. Or you might come to church on a Sunday and sing some lovely songs and, and hear a message from the pulpit. Is that why God chose to do this for you? 
No. No. And if that is your thinking this morning, can I say that you could not be more wrong in your thinking than believing that? Listen to what Paul says, and Grant, um, Grant, you must have been reading my sermon this week, mate. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 9. Oh, by the way, the uh, title of today's message, Don't Play Favourites. Ephesians 2, 4 to 9 says this. You might not be able to read it, it might be a bit small behind me, but let me read it to you. But God, I love those words, because what Paul is identifying here is a change. And Grant sort of read the, uh, the previous verses. When, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in, when we were dead in our, in our spiritual beings, you know, we were dead towards God, we had no relationship with him whatsoever. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And not only that, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he, that is God, might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone might boast. Paul makes it clear in writing to the church in Ephesus that our salvation purely is a work of God as, a, as a, an outworking of his grace and mercy and love towards us, even when we did not deserve it in any way, shape or form. There was nothing deserving in us whatsoever that, 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 that merited God's favour towards us. God did it out of his grace, his mercy and his love towards us. And Paul says that this free offer of salvation is available to all, to every single person, irrespective of who they are, what their backgrounds are, what their social status is, what their, you know, no matter who they are in this world today, that salvation is freely offered to all who will simply come to him in faith, repentance and faith. Salvation is offered all, to all purely on the basis of God's grace. We've sung about that this morning. So if this is how God treats everyone, every single person in this world, then don't you think that we as God's children should reflect the same characteristics towards others? Shouldn't we be people who extend grace and mercy towards those people around about us? Folks, we are a gospel community. We are a gospel community. We have been brought into being by the gospel, by the precious saving work of Jesus Christ. We have been brought into being through this good news. And now we are directed as to how to live by that same gospel. 
This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Or as James describes it here in, in, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, someone who holds the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, James begins this passage this morning and uh, you've got to remember that in, uh, in, the, in the, the, uh, the original writings, we didn't have chapter and verse divisions, okay, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in what Paul wrote. This was a letter. This was a letter that James wrote, I should say, not Paul, that James wrote. And so he's continuing on from where we left off in verse 27. And he says this, he says, My brothers, identifying all fellow believers in Jesus Christ, he says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you live out the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to show no partiality, no favouritism to others. In last week we saw in James chapter 1 verses 26 to 27 that if we truly claim to be children of God, then, then if, we, if we're people who are, have been born again by the Spirit of God, that God has done this incredible work within us and made us alive to him in his way, then, then our lives should reflect his character. If God is truly at work within us by his spirit, changing us and transforming us, then we should be becoming more like him in his character and in the way he, that he treats others. Like father, like child, we said last week. Just as God's word is a life-giving word, we are to be people who should be careful how we speak to others. We should have a bridal tongue. We saw that in verse 26 of of chapter 1 last week. Just as God has reached out to us in mercy and kindness, we should have the same care and concern for others. James says that that, uh, that we should visit orphans and widows in their affliction to show care, kindness and care. Because that's how our Father is. And just as God is holy, we too should seek to be holy and to live holy lives. We should keep ourselves unstained from the world. And James continues on this morning and implied in what he, when he says show no partiality is the fact that God himself shows no partiality to, to people in our world today. He shows no partiality to, to all of the human race. We see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. It just says, Paul writes simply, for God shows no partiality. That's repeated a number of times through uh, through the Bible. And because our Father is like that, then we ourselves as his children are to be like him and show no favouritism or partiality to those around about us. This this is in a command form here. It is, is God's command to us. Do not do this. Now, that word partiality, by the way, actually means to, sort of, to receive one's face. That's what it means in the original, the original language, to receive one's face. In other words, it's, it's making a judgment about a person that is based on external appearances, on outward appearances. Now, we know, reading from 1 Samuel 16, that it is man who looks on the outward appearance, but it is God who looks where? On the inside, on the inside at the heart. That's right, Bree. God looks at the heart. So to, to show 
favoritism or partiality then is, is a complete contradiction of God's character. And it is a complete contradiction of the faith that we then profess to have. James says, show no partiality. That is the principle. That's the command. And then he goes on to give a bit of an illustration in verses 2 to 4. And he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you would pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now what James is trying to sort of say here is that there's only one answer to this question. If we in fact do this, then yes, we have become judges with evil thoughts if we treat people in this way. Now, try to put it in our own context. The picture is of two people who show up to church one Sunday morning. Possibly newcomers, perhaps believers, but not necessarily so. Two people, two newcomers arrive at our church doorstep one Sunday morning. One is well-dressed and well-spoken. And that person is, is kind of warmly received and welcomed and made to sort of feel, you know, really at home and perhaps, you know, sort of shown to their seat and introduced to some of the people around about them. A great deal of effort is shown in making them feel a part of the fellowship, to make them feel very welcome here in the church. Whereas the other person who might be perhaps shabbily dressed, perhaps is, you know, doesn't sort of kind of fit with us in terms of their, you know, social standing maybe. Perhaps they're a bit different to us. Maybe their skin colour is different to us. Maybe they might have tattoos or piercings or things like that. And this person then is virtually ignored and left to fend for themselves, to find their own seat. And throughout the service, no one says hello to them. Good morning. Hi, how are you? My name's so-and-so. What's your name? Where have you come from? Gee, it's good to have you here this morning. Instead, they're just left in their seat. And the service ends, and they're still left in their seat. No one takes any notice, and then they just leave. They've not been made to feel welcome at all. I want you to notice the language that James uses in this passage. Verse 3, he says, if you pay attention. Now, the word behind that is this, 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 this meaning of pay special attention, privileged attention to a person. He goes on to say in verse 4, if you make distinctions about these people. See, to pay special attention or to make distinctions, that is what partiality or favouritism is all about. It is to, to, it is to make distinctions based purely on outward appearance of these people. In the case that James pointed out, it is to give that rich person, the person with fine clothing and jewellery, a place of honour, whereas the poor person is treated with disdain. See, once we do this, immediately we have made a distinction concerning these two individuals. 
We have given one person a higher value or a higher level of importance than another person. And James says to do that is a serious sin. It's a serious sin to show partiality. Because James says that in doing this, we become judges with evil thoughts and motives in our hearts. Another name we might refer to it today is discrimination or prejudice. We've seen examples of this right throughout human history. We see it in the treatment of, of African Americans in the US, throughout the history of the US, and, and even today. We've seen it in apartheid in South Africa. We've even seen it in our own country and how and indigenous people have been treated you know, throughout, the, uh, throughout the last couple of hundred years in Australia and are still treated today. Racism is a distinct type of this partiality, of this favouritism. If you've been you know, watching the news this week, it's been, it's been right there, front and centre in our news. But we also see this partiality demonstrated in other ways as well in our society today. We see it in how the elderly are often treated in our society. How they are pushed to the margins because, you know, what, what use are the elderly now? They can't work anymore. They can't contribute to taxes and the running of the country and things like that. All they are is a drain and a burden on society. That's what, our, that's what our society says a lot today about our elderly. Isn't that showing partiality and favouritism? What about those with mental illness? The disabled? The poor and the homeless? Even in our churches today, we see this partiality and favouritism rear its ugly head. And, you know, we can, we can do this so often without even realising it. Without even, without even, you know, sort of giving it any kind of second thought, we do it. What about those who are single in our fellowship? You know, we have a lot of emphasis on families and on children and things like that. But what about those who don't have family and children? Who are instead pushed to the margins? When we get together, we get together in our family groups or we get together with our husbands and wives and the single, person, the single people get left on the edges, on the margins. Isn't that showing partiality and favouritism? What about those who, who are naturally reserved people or introverts? I'm an introvert, by the way. People who find it hard to connect with other people. Do we make the effort to make them feel welcome? Sometimes we've got to go out of our way to do that. But instead, it can be, we can be, you know, just, well, you know, they can just please themselves. What about those who have different views to us, whether they're political views or theological views? Those people who are just not like us. You know, one of the things that I, really, that I really appreciate here is that, as a, generally speaking, as a church, we do pretty well, I think, at, at making people feel welcome and caring for one another. There is a lot of that that goes on within the fellowship of this church, and it's so wonderful to see. Honestly, it just, when you hear things that are going on around the place, it just blesses your heart. It really does. But we mustn't rest on our laurels. 
because we as a church can always do better. We can always do better. On the other hand, I've spoken with a number of people who have attended this church for a number of years who still at times find themselves isolated from the family. They can sit here on a Sunday morning and be completely surrounded by a couple of hundred people and yet feel completely isolated. I was at a conference on Friday and the speaker, he made this wonderful point. I didn't make a lot of notes, but this is one of the things I jotted down because it it just really hit me. He said this, he says, God has pursued us in saving us. God has pursued. You know the word pursued means? It means chased after, actively chased after us in order to save us. In order to save you, God has pursued you. To think that the God of the universe, the one who is you know, sovereign over all things, actively took it upon himself to pursue you as a person, as an individual. He went on to say, what would it look like for the church to be filled with people who actively pursue others like God has pursued us? The newcomer. That we were all people who actively pursued the newcomer. Not that, you know, the person walks in the door and all of a sudden, you know, 50 million people races towards them or scare away like that. There are people in our congregation today who have got a wonderful gift of being able to go and talk to new people and they do that, that, that role very, very well. But let's not just leave it to those people. Let us all be those people who actively pursue after those to make them feel welcome, regardless of what they look like or where they come from. What about the downcast, those who are, who are down in their spirits? Incredible statistic hit me last night as I was listening to the news. One in four people in the ages of 16 to 24, one in four struggle with depression. One in four people between the ages of 16 to 24. And it increases to when you get, you know, to when you get older. I was speaking to a, my doctor not that long ago, actually, and he said, you know, every second patient, one in two patients of his, he treats for some kind of depression. What does that say about our congregation today? There are people among us who are struggling. Will we be people who actively pursue in order to show them the love and the grace of God. I could go on and talk about those, the disengaged, the alien, the stranger, those who are lost. Our our community of people who are lost to God. Whose eternity at this particular point in life is, is really... An eternity where they are heading towards destruction. 
Will we actively be people who pursue those people in order to share with them the gospel? How wonderful would a church like that be? A church full of people who pursue others to show them the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Are you a pursuer this morning? Are you one who pursues for God because God has pursued you? James goes on to point out what this display or attitude of favouritism, why it's wrong in verses 5 to 7. And he urges his readers to to listen. He says in verse 5, listen, pay careful attention, think carefully on what I'm about to say. And essentially, James' argument goes like this. It's, if we favour the rich and treat the poor with disrespect, then this goes entirely against God's character and actions. If we show partiality and favouritism to anyone, then it goes against how God treats us and others. Now, what we need to keep in mind here is that James is speaking in generalities, okay? He's not saying that all who are poor are good and that all who are rich are bad. Because we know from common, common, common sense and experience that that's not the case. But what James is pointing out is, is how God principally acts in our world and how he has principally acted in our world. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Sorry, but you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? See, James, James is pointing out how God principally acts in our world. God's heart has always been for the poor. Always been for the poor. Now, in essence, yes, we are all spiritually poor before God. But James is referring here to those who are economically poor. And his point here is not to defend God's sovereign choice in election. He's not about defending that. He's not even going to go into that argument. All he's doing is he's purely stating a fact about God, and that is this, that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And his choice is based purely on his grace. If you want to go into that kind of uh, argument, look look at Romans chapter 9, because Paul goes right into that, God's sovereign choice in saving people. Now, that's not to say that God only chooses the poor because we know that there are many people in God's kingdom today who in fact are are very wealthy people but the reality is that generally speaking in James's day and even to an extent to today more people who are poor will become believers in Jesus Christ Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 to 29 where he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has a purpose. And in revealing that purpose, he chooses often to to direct a lot of his grace and a lot of his mercy towards those who this world will write off. Jesus himself in the parable of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 points out that, that it is hard for the rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Why? Because they put too much emphasis on their own resources, their own abilities and their own wealth. They'd rather depend on their own wealth and their own resources than actually submit and surrender themselves to God. See, what the kingdom of God does is it turns human values on their head. It completely turns human values upside down. And what James is saying is that when we dishonour the poor person, when we show favouritism, when we play favourites, then we despise and reject those whom God has shown his favour towards. And therefore it puts us at odds with God and his will and purposes in our world today. That's what happens when we show favouritism. We automatically put ourselves at odds with God and his plans. In contrast, James says, in favouring the rich, he says that we, fa- that we then favour the ones who take advantage of the poor and who use their wealth and power and position to oppress the poor. You want to read a lot about that? Go to the book of Amos, the prophet Amos. It, you know, it's full of, of this condemnation of the people of God who, were, who had so much, so much wealth and how they treated and oppressed the poor. But let me say that James is not condemning the rich just because of their wealth, but it is more so because of their lack of compassion towards others. And God will condemn us when we ourselves are people who show a lack of compassion towards those around about us. And we do that when we show partiality and favouritism. So when we take when we take sides, when we show favoritism and partiality to those around about us, then what we're essentially doing is we are giving preferential treatment. We are giving preferential treatment, and often we do it in order for, for our own benefit, in order to make a good impression with people, in order that it might benefit us pers- per- personally. That is so often why we show partiality and favoritism, because we think there'll be a payoff for us. But when we do this, we are siding against God. We are acting completely at odds and in opposition towards the way God acts. Let me finish by saying this. How can we seek to prevent ourselves from people treating people with partiality? How can we sort of try to help ourselves, you know, sort of try to sort of have that mindset where we might sort of limit ourselves to doing this or prevent ourselves from doing this? Well, it all comes down to having a proper perspective of who Jesus Christ is. 
He alone is the supremely glorious Saviour and Lord. James says in, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Or, or, or of the glory. Speaking of the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. This, you know, you know the, 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 the pillar of cloud, that, uh, the, sorry, the, the cloud that followed the, the Israelites through the wilderness and the pillar of fire at night, the cloud by day. That Shekinah glory of God. Jesus Christ of the glory, the glorious one. When we start to recognise who Jesus is, in his majesty and in his glory, then it gives us a proper perspective of everyone else. If we give the proper, and on, if the, if we give the proper honour and glory to Jesus in our lives, it will help us to see that in comparison to him, every single one of us falls short. Every single one of us are, are poor. What Jesus does is he, in, in, in coming and, and, and dying for the world, he creates a level playing field where every single person who stands before him stands before him on equal footing. He breaks down the walls of division, Paul says in Ephesians 2. He brings unity. So how wrong is it for us then to rebuild those same walls? If that is what Christ came to do to break down the walls, how wrong is it for us to then rebuild them? As we're reminded of Jesus' glory and of his majesty and of his power, what we're also reminded of the fact is that he alone has the right to judge, not us. He alone is able to discern the true hearts of men. And what we also see is that when we, when we see Christ rightly, when we have the right perspective of who Jesus is, when we're pointed to the fact that he chose to sacrifice his life for our sake, even when we didn't merit it, when he chose us in our own spiritual poverty and gave his life to make us rich, we see that, that every single one of us have value in, in the sight of Jesus Christ. If Jesus was willing to give his life for everyone, great and small, then surely that points to the value of every single person in this world today, doesn't it? Warren Rearsby in his commentary says, God's grace forces us to relate to people not on the basis of human merit or social status, but on the basis of the worth that God places on us all. That's what the gospel does. So, let me ask you this morning, do you struggle with partiality? Do you struggle with showing favouritism to others? And perhaps this morning you might need to ask Jesus to give you a better understanding of his glorious grace which he has poured out on you even though you were so unworthy even though there was nothing within you that merited it even though you did not deserve it in any way, shape or form 
as we ponder on that grace that Jesus has showed us, I pray that it will help us to recognise that that is the way we are to treat everyone else. That is what the gospel is all about. And we are called to be a gospel community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for this reminder of, uh, from James about the fact that, Lord, we are not meant to show partiality to, uh, to those around about us. And, Lord, it is so easy for us to do that. And often, Lord, we do it without even thinking about it. But, Lord, we're reminded today, and it's a very stark reminder, that when we show partiality to those around about us, Lord, that puts us in complete and utter opposition to you. Lord, it puts us in a place of, ju- of being judges, judges with evil motives and hearts and thoughts. Instead, Lord, help us to remember the grace that has been poured out on us in our lives. And, Lord, help us in, in, indeed to be people who then extend that same grace to all those around about us, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what their background, no matter what their skin colour, no matter who they are, help us to show that grace and mercy to everyone. We ask it for Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.